1: across our music and culture channels we have a wide range of shows covering every genre along with chat shows discussions and special broadcasts here is just one of our recent shows to catch the full show head to our mix club page or listen live at
2: sohoradiolondon.com you're listening to the silver stream a journey through ideas in collaboration with invited guests using visual artworks, writing and music as navigation points within a stream of consciousness. I'm Byzantia Harlow, a visual artist and the creator and host of The Silver Stream. For today's episode, An Echo of the Truth, I'm joined by artist M- Rebecca Malloy. You can find today's images, tracklists and reading references on my Instagram at Byzantia Harlow. For those that don't know, Rebecca makes performance, painting and sculpture as a way to explore what it means to be in our body, our experience of ourselves, each other and the world around us. Playing with the dynamics of social gatherings, Rebecca stages installations and experiences that interweave the emotional and physical aspects of living today. I'm very happy to have such a powerful woman with me in the studio for this episode, which airs just after International Women's Day, and so her radio's programme of events on the Culture Channel to celebrate this. Rebecca recently began a music collaboration with Ollie Chapman, and you can hear one of their tracks under us now. We'll hear some more of their music later, but thanks for joining me, Rebecca. Maybe can you tell us the name of the track? Uh,
1: Yeah, it's called No, and it's a cover of a Nick Drake song. Cool,
2: let's hear a bit of it. So in today's episode, we'll consider how artists may use what they have at their disposal in order to reimagine their realities, readily accessible tools such as their bodies, their identities, their surroundings, to shift their experience and create alternate realities for their audiences, gaps between facts and fictions, which can become veneers to be layered and constructed, shapes into liminal transient spaces, created worlds of wonder with reality just out of reach and behind these thin surfaces that are easy to scratch. Um, So the artist may choose to create a work that appears not to be located in any kind of one thing or contextual reference, but to be a sort of uprooted thing. Um, which kind of accords to Bataille's thinking on the subject of the formless. And if disruption is part of this creative process and everything is in freefall, then the operation that displaces the context and the slippage of form is the key. So Umberto Eco states in The Poetics of the Open Work that every reception of a work of art is both an interpretation and a performance of it. So today's episode... Um, touches on notions of participation, discourse genres, and modes utilized in order to enact stereotypes in an attempt to examine, celebrate, or subvert them, rendering them uncanny, work that turns the familiar encounter on its head via a knowing flirtation with the audience's desires and expectations in order to deliver delayed gratification.
3: And he sat down and he was just talking to us and we were all laughing. We didn't know him. And we just, you know, we were all just kind of, and then so he finally, he left, and we finished. So I went up to pay the bill, and the the man said, well, your grandpa uh, left his bill here, too. I said, my grandpa? <laughs> so that old man had come over and kind of scammed us. And so I said, well, that was not my grandpa, but I paid it, of course. So when we left, I walked down the street, and he was standing there at the light. And, you know, we walked to the corner. And so I went over to him, and I said, hey, I would have been happy, you know, to have paid your, your bill, you know? I said, but uh, then you're telling me you're my grandpa. And he took his walking stick, and he started just beating me across the chest. I mean, just as hard as he could. Just wham, 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 wham. And it hurt. Oh, my this, gosh. I know. But Real? then, but then what, 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 what happened? What do you mean, what happened? <laughs> These two big lumps came up, and they never did go down. <laughs>
1: as um, an excerpt of an interview with Dolly Parton on the Jimmy Fallon show Um, so in the interview she often uses jokes and stories as a way to divert and alert attention to her appearance so she'll often talk about her breasts her plastic surgery her hair and do it in a way before the interviewer can get a chance to yeah (laughs) in this case Dolly tells a story that is seemingly not about her appearance at all but then ends with a punchline that ridicules her breast size I feel she does this to get in first. She hears the ridicules from others and is like, well, I'll use that for myself. You think they're ridiculous, I'll give you a story that's ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, In some of the early interviews with Dolly, interviewers would ask her directly what weight she was. And I watched these videos thinking about how crazy that is, that it was acceptable. um, And how much time was also spent talking about these things in the interviews rather than her actual music or the gift of songwriting that she has. Um, at the same time, she's very aware and she uses her appearance to provoke others and then opens up the boundaries by being the first one to talk about her boobs or her sexuality, for example. Yeah. So I really like this play of her being a, like a blonde bimbo or a stereotype of a female country singer, but then the subversion of that as her songwriting spans really quite intense subjects such as inequality, suicide and infidelity. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in how we can use persona or alter egos or versions of ourselves to make the reality that we want. As an artist, you have a certain license to delve into lots of subject areas. So for me, and with my performances, it's allowed me to become a dancer or a singer for a certain period of time. But then I also do the subversion and play with these roles. I use a performance as a way to become what I want and to present myself to an audience in that way of a kind of personal ideology. Yeah. In one of my latest performances, The Cactus Dance, where I seduce a human-sized papier-mâché cactus for the duration of about four hours... You can see images on my Instagram. (laughs) I was very interested in subverting the gaze. So the performance is a play on the lap dance and usually the dancer would look at her audience or client. But I do not do that. I don't give any attention to the audience. Instead, it's all about the object. I look only at the cactus and all of my body movements are and towards it. The audience doesn't inform whether I'm performing or not. I carry on seducing the object whether people are there.
2: Yeah really interesting um and i really like the shift in the dynamic of the spectator participant and audience roles it's like using tropes that people feel quite familiar with or have expectations of like the lap dance or you know, various things and then kind of letting them play out in a slightly uncanny or unnerving way and then the audience thinks it knows what to expect. Um, It's in the realm of the erotic dance but these expectations are never fully met and there's a great guide aboard quote where he states his intention to wake up the spectator who has been drugged by spectacular images through radical action in the form of the construction of situations that bring a revolutionary reordering of life, politics and art.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I like to use these escapist experiences such as raves, concerts or strip clubs and take elements from them to make my performances. There seems to me, sorry, these seem to me to be places where letting go, escaping and desire are really present. So I think I like to deconstruct them a bit and bring it back together in my performances, but in this altered way. So they kind of become familiar but strange. Uh, the cactus dance also allowed me to use my body in ways that I actually really enjoy. So a big part of the work was finding ways that I could also connect to my body, the sound and surroundings and feel control of my sexuality. Yeah. Um, but the cactus like becomes this prop of sorts, something to work towards and something to channel my energy to. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to find a way where I could be in charge of my body in this erotic way, but where I also felt safe. Using my studio as an exhibition space really worked for this. I was As I was in my natural habitat... I felt comfortable at home dancing in that way, and it also felt right to let the public in.
2: (laughs) Yeah, the studio is like a safe space in general, I think, and like it's somewhere I analyze stuff as well. I like to think of it as like this kind of earth bed that allows for growth from like shadowy elements, like dirt, as some kind of thonic form of alchemy. Um, And it's an interesting power dynamic you're playing with, kind of ignoring the audience but courting their attention and then not looking back. And speaking of dirt beds, it reminds me a bit of a solo exhibition that I did called Lunar Water, where I lay in 10 tonnes of earth inside a gallery, which I shaped to look like the moon surface with craters and these like meteorite sculptures. And I lay in this tinfoil recovery blanket in a really sleek nighty, pretending to sleep but occasionally waking up to look at my alarm clock or give an audience member a silent tarot reading with a deck I'd made that lay beside me. And this whole installation was very uncanny and like visually beautiful with me as this fantasy element perfectly posed and waiting for the viewer to arrive and see me sleep. So it's this private moment again made public but also a metaphor for the artist creating universes for people to experience like worlds where we're dreaming into being for them. And it was this thing between showmanship and shamanship. So I was like the crone at the end of the pier, performing fortune telling for the chosen few and seductively ignoring the rest. And it kind of touches on reality because I used to be a tarot card reader. Um, and I was also enacting something I do often at home, which is like I lie in bed, staring <laughs> at the virtual crystal wall of the internet and like endlessly anxiously reading my own tarot. It's like part of my process. And I really hate my own private views. So being asleep was a way of gaining control of that and a form of avoidance but also I was like incredibly vulnerable lying there and the whole thing was very very voyeuristic and I literally lay there seductively for two weeks while the show was open and it reminded me of the artifice involved in waiting like perfectly made up but as if it's effortless on the off chance your lover may pop round (laughs) and this kind of pressure to be perfect just in case um And it was really hard work because the earth was hard and cold and I laced it with fungal spores that started to grow during the period. But... It was like really physically challenging, but I looked like I was just luxuriously lazy for people who like chanced c- to come in. So I was playing with a very teenage girl stereotype, which I do actually embody. But in doing so, I was healing all those days where I waited perfectly poised for someone to show up who maybe never did. And you know, then when the press like had images of my show, I was like, yes, I'm seen. <laughs> we all want to be seen. Um, but yeah, there was also this film element in the installation, which included The Wizard of Oz synced up with. With Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon because you know that urban myth and it was like I was almost embodying Dorothy in my dirt dreaming her fantasy while in reality she was recovering in her bed from the tornado um, and there's a quote from Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity that I feel is appropriate here. Woman itself is a term in process, a becoming, a constructing that cannot rightfully be said to originate or to end. As an ongoing discursive practice it's open to in- ...intervention and re-signification.
1: Yeah, I like this a lot. And I also feel that as our ideas about gender change... ...then that process of becoming can change and be less rigid. Yeah. Um. So the cactus Dance, as a durational piece... ...its length is really important... ...as it spans three to four hours for one performance. And I really like performing in this way... ...of not knowing exactly where it's going to go. It's evolving and growing... ...and I'm not sure what movements will be next... ...as there is no set structure... So audience members can come and go as they please and they, so they may experience it for the whole duration, a fraction or any time that they feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, throughout the duration of the piece, due to its length, repetition and body exhaustion, I feel myself entering into this sort of trance state. Yeah. And I feel like there's this element of me becoming someone else and there's almost an out-of-body experience. And that's what I really want to achieve for myself within the dancing where I'm just completely feeling it with my body and I stop controlling the movements and reach freedom is this idea of the party. I've been working around that theme for a while now in my practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, the cactus dance is seen to, um, important to explore like this idea of it being a social con- uh, construct. And I'm interested in how we create a party for a social gathering as a way to let loose, to let go of reality and to express ourselves. And to basically give our sense of that sense of freedom like through rituals. Yeah um so i kind of wanted to tap into that idea of creating an alternate world much like a nightclub a rave or a strip club where you're immersed into something else that reality or a staging of a reality is really interesting to me and seems to come out a lot in my performance works yeah um, during the development of this work I took on diva dance classes learnt how to pole dance and music nice. <laughs> dance videos, yeah, right? and you went to strip clubs too right because I, yeah. I did
2: that when I did burlesque I went to loads of strip clubs it's very good research
1: Oh uh, yeah exactly and I actually learnt how to pole dance in a strip club Nice. Really and you cool. have a pole in your bedroom um, which <laughs> I, I saw when, when I like came you. to your studio <laughs> yep yeah, exactly Um, So these things act, as, as you say, like research, but they also become like learning a language. So there's a process of my body remembering things, a mix of dance moves I'd learn, and moves that I would do naturally when dancing. So then this would all inform me, and then when I would go and do the cactus dance, it would come out in this really instinctive way. Um, so the music was a really important element for the cactus dance, and it evolved like in a kind of similar way. And I worked with a DJ called Nick Moss, who would play tracks whilst I dance. Yeah. And the music like varied in genre, but overall there was like this atmosphere of Twin Peaks, where sounds and music felt quite eerie yet sensual. And we've got one of the tracks under us, right? Yes. We're to yes, we have. Them. Yeah, that's it's called "The Weather" by Moon Wheel. Nice. No. Um yeah, so that process was really responsive, which I really enjoyed, and he would like slow down the music, depending on my body and what I was doing, and then move on to other tracks in response to me. And there was a sense of peaks and troughs, and in turn I would dance the music music letting it work as the rhythm for seduction. Um, so at the moment, as well, just to kind of like bring it to the present, I have lots of like physical limitations which mean I can't perform in this way any longer. Yeah. Uh, so I have a health condition that means I'm in chronic pain, and I'm finding myself coming to it, compromise. Compromise, it, sorry, with what my body can or can't do now, which is kind of
2: interesting. It's like you almost knew maybe that this was going to happen, yeah, and then you yeah, made yeah. your most like performative and durational and like hard on your body. Piece exactly. So that year, <laughs>
1: before. yeah, that year where I was doing the performance dance, it was like uh, sorry, the performance piece it was like cramming it all in that yeah. year. It was kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, so now, yeah, durational works so are kind of impossible for for me at the minute yeah. um and it's much more like fragmented in the way that I have to work so kind of focusing on painting and that might be just for like 10 minutes at a time and then resting yeah. for the rest of the day due to the pain yeah so I'm slowly learning how to manage my frustrations with this and I'm trying to build myself back up so that my body can be resilient and physical again um, <laughs> yeah
2: it's really tricky um In the situationist view, situations are actively created moments that are like characterised by, I quote, a sense of self-consciousness of existence within a particular environment or ambience. And I was just wondering like what the audience's reaction to this piece was.
1: Yeah, so it was actually really mixed and um, some people kind of felt awkward when they would enter the space as they weren't sure if they were allowed to watch me dancing. Or <laughs> <laughs> Some people felt uncomfortable watching just because there were other people around. And I guess there's like a lot of social boundaries that are being tested when you do that kind of performance. Yeah. And then other people were really comfortable and they wanted to talk to me about it after or they would sit and watch the performance for a long time. I even had, like, people chatting me up in some cases. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) And I guess, like, in general, I feel like men kind of felt like it was more for them, like I was doing that kind of ritualistic mating call towards them and... Whereas maybe women felt a bit more like in general that there was like an element of empowerment and that I was exploring ideas of feminism. I mean, that's a generalisation, but like that's kind of what I picked up. And were you happy with like any kind of response to it? Yeah, in a weird kind of way, it became a bit of like a social experiment and I was really intrigued to see how people felt about it and what kind of, uh, yeah, what their thoughts were. But I guess my favourite thing was like when I performed it in my studio and then later at Charlton Gallery... Both times when I finished performing, Nick carried on DJing and then everyone started dancing and grinding up to the cactus like themselves. And I really love that their response then was really physical and it opened up like that opened up the work for everyone and they could be a part of it. Yeah, I think there's
2: something really interesting here about like audience participation, which I think is a general thread to your work, so something about like jarring the expected experience, yeah. and it reminds me of discourse genres and subverting expected interactions with artworks themselves, but also like the viewing of them or the presentation of an artwork. So I'm like really interested in those genres and like etiquettes and modes. For example, we all put on like a telephone voice instinctively. People say my voice is different when I'm on the radio we enter spaces to view artworks or arrive at a party environment and we do so with like a really similarly prescriptive set of roles that we play out that we all kind of expect of each other in a way and they're like codified and generally agreed upon um expectations and postures Mm. and i feel like your work and ethos around it is subverting and colliding such genres and discourses so in the cactus dance you present the lap dance as a performance subverting the roles of passive and active for the viewer and complicating their role as participant and then at the moment where they become used to that dynamic you flip it again and it becomes Mm. a party (laughs) and you offer this kind of delayed gratification as a payoff or release and like in other works we're going to hear about you create a a kind of party environment however this is like a solo party that you enact which the audience are invited to participate in but really remove distance via their observation so it kind of comes back to this idea we mentioned of control and reclamation of safe space because you're very much in charge Mm -hmm. and like i really resonate with your practice and the research element entering a world that interests you and then presenting it through a different lens real enough to be recognizable but sort of slightly skewed and my own practice revolves around really blurry boundaries of reality and fiction exploring knockoffs veneers of truth recollection and reenactment and like recently i began a a youtube project lunar water tarot as a continuation of the show i mentioned before and i have an alter ego or persona alaris who and i kind of investigate intersections between true experience constructed encounter and embellished recollection so i worked as a professional tarot reader like 12 years ago and a burlesque performer and i draw on like all of these different things to create these like genuine divinations that are laced with fictitious narratives so I had loads of personal readings done from YouTube like YouTube star tarot readers (laughs) and then I like recreate elements of them but I do real like tarot readings with my deck as well and it's like all this mishmash of like reality and construct and it's it's interesting because I'm walking this tightrope across like parody and sincerity and myself and other and lunar water tarot exists on youtube amongst all the other online readings but my videos kind of jar and they highlight how constructed the whole thing is because online fortune telling is a world of perfect fake nails, comforting vocal tones, big smiles, and like solidarity, but with undertones of female sexuality. And the videos promise empowerment, all the while trapping the viewer in this like endless loop of how does he feel playlist, watching until they get the right answer or the answer they want to hear. Trust me, I've done it for hours. <laughs> like, it's the perfect mix of spiritual advice, self care, amateur psychoanalysis, and answers. And it's like a sickly sweet trap for heartbroken and i sound like i'm criticizing it but even if i am i found it very like comforting (laughs) um and although my project pastiches all of this, some of like the internet viewers and other online tarot readers, and even those that know my art practice well, have taken the videos seriously. And to those that know me, this is because I'm playing a version of myself, but to an extreme. Um, for those that don't, it's because the videos are delivered in the language of the genre I'm investigating, and they do contain some genuine moments of divination, like I'll do random card pulls and they always back up the narrative that I've pre-planned, which is really weird not weird I believe in those things um (laughs) but it's perfect because in my work the whole thing is like whether or not something is real or constructed it's still possible to find resonance within it so it's about faith and belief and like to the cynic the video will appear cynical to the believer it's possible to find either truth or disillusionment but whatever is found is like a reflection of the viewer's stance they'll see what they're looking for so some people will see your dance and be like oh how can she do that that's so indecent or they'll see it as empowering do you know what i mean it's mm. like a mirror artworks are like a mirror for mm, what yeah. is going on with people um yeah and i feel like with all online tarot readings it's like if the message resonates it's only because the viewer kind of already knew it within their subconscious anyway so i feel like you're like really touching on similar concerns as well with this like enactment um as well as playing with the potential for disillusionment and this kind of delayed gratification that we were talking about um within a work of yours becca blue which i'd love you to speak about now
1: (laughs) yeah so becca blue is this performance piece where i sing very intimately to strangers but in a large cupboard and uh (laughs) here's a bit of a description below from like sorry here's a description from the audience (laughs) perspective (laughs) Uh, there's a female bouncer dressed head to toe in black with dark black tart sunglasses She guards a glittered gold door, informing me that there's a performance inside and that I'd need to queue for entry. I'm let in after the bouncer checks the performer is ready. Inside there is a shag-pile carpet, satin cre- green drapes, disco lights and a karaoke setup. Behind the mic stands a woman in a blonde wig and a blue velvet catsuit. She wears fake blue nails and false eyelashes. It is just me and her in the cupboard. She gestures for me to sit down. She stands over me and tells me in the mic that she's Becca Blue and that she'll be performing for me tonight. She presses play on a backing track and sings to me. Um, so the next track is the only recording from the performance and it's me covering, or Becca Blue covering, an Adele song called Make You Feel My Love. So, I really liked what you said earlier about faith and belief. Um, so, in order for the audience members to feel like I'm genuinely singing a song to them and that they matter in this interaction, they really, knew, sorry, really do need to believe that I am singing to them and that I'm feeling the emotions that the songs are expressing. Like, yeah, but you, it sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, just listening back to that, I was like, oh, God, yeah, I really felt that. <laughs> that moment. It's quite nice to listen to it again. Um, so I feel that in order for the audience to be convinced by this and to feel like there's an exchange of emotion, it partly comes from how I interact and sing to them, but also the reality which uh, they step into once they get inside the cupboard. So it all adds to this strangely absurd experience, but hopefully a genuine and real one at the same time. Um, I think this work also plays on this idea of the private versus public. So it reminds me of when you're a teenager, or even now, for some (laughs) of (laughs) us, that we play make-believe and sing to ourselves in front of a mirror with a hairbrush. And there's this idea that when you're singing to yourself in the mirror, you're the only audience member. So you feel free to perform however you want. But there's this, at the same time, there's like a sort of fantasy of the other, of being mm. watched as you look back at yourself. Like when I'm in my makeup at home waiting for my life. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's the same. Yeah, there's a play out of a fantasy. Yes. Exactly. So I guess that in my performances of like The Cactus Dance and Becca Blue, I'm playing out the idea of what we keep for ourselves, but then also what we share for others. Mm. And using the performances as a way to kind of question this idea of what is private. Mm. And I think this is uh, is important as it adds an element of uncomfortableness to the performances as you're not really sure whether you're actually supposed to be watching and kind of viewing this private moment yeah. um, or indeed whether you're supposed to participate.
2: Did people like
1: join in? <laughs> uh, one, Yeah, like I remember one girl singing with me and she was like, it was a bit more of an upbeat song. I can't really remember what it was, but she yeah. did sing with me. I had one girl like crying. Aww. Yeah, it was... It was yeah, people responded differently to also how uncomfortable and awkward they felt. And you pick tracks
2: that you usually sing would choose and yeah, to like sing classic, yourself in
1: yeah, like classic karaoke, classic yeah. karaoke tunes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think a strong part of my practice is this idea that I create these spaces using installations, painting, sculpture, and performance, and then I can like assign like meaning to that space, objects, and actions, which allows for then this narrative or interactions and experiences. So I like the idea of being the creator of this rather than the user as well.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting that you turn the dynamic of karaoke Mm. on its head. So like usually karaoke is all about audience participation in traditional karaoke. The audience members then become interchangeable with the performers. So they're like passive and active. They sing the song and then they watch people sing and they make a conscious decision to be part of the action you know they're the entertainer and the audience so it's Mm -hmm. kind of this like wish fulfillment this participatory act which implicates the audience as they're inseparable from the source and also karaoke is in itself transmutative and reflects the day-to-day changes of culture so like Tammy Winnett can be sung in many ways and each time it's sung it has an echo of the truth you know um (laughs) and in this kind of murky mire of precedence and the boulevards, we're going to submerge ourselves in or we do as artists or as people it's like our creative cornucopia it's like to borrow a phrase from Dave Hickey I feel we're like sort of stretching our toes downward to find a new bottom from which we might push Mm -hmm. off so we're like in this I feel like as artists we're like dumpster diving all the time there's yeah. like nothing new you're always referencing and cultural or yeah. art historical things you know and karaoke is that so it's a good metaphor for artworks um, and with Becca Blue the audience can't participate they can only watch you voyeuristically and you sing to one audience member at a time so it's like a personal ballad mm. and I like the lyrics of the extract we just heard in relation to this how the experience could be seen as an attempt to make the viewer feel your love mm, yeah. Although the audience cannot sing karaoke during the performance, you do allow them the satisfaction of the party once it's complete. So once you've done your performance, there is like the party element. Mm. So again, it's like this delayed gratification, as with the cactus dance. And I really like playing with boundaries in my work and feel like a work has agency once it breaks out of itself almost in this way. Um, and but for me it's when it exists in like the real world. So for example, a YouTube psychic that I got a reading from under a false name, so she couldn't see anything about me, knew that I'd created a tarot deck and she did an online tarot reading and for me and then she asked if she could put that on her youtube channel because it was such an interesting reading and so i was like (laughs) okay this is the moment lunar water tarot becomes interesting because my research began to eat its own tail and my use of the online readings as source material was like turned on its head and i became like the (laughs) object of like do you know what i mean it's weird um so i feel like there's something similar going on with you in these moments of delayed promise and then allowing like reality to take over and like you 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 kind of relinquish your control By letting the audience eventually interact or whatever. Um, And there's something about you creating these veneers and then letting them collapse in on themselves. So it's about the fantasy and reality, but you allow the moment for the fantasy you create to be broken and the bubble to burst and the expected aspect of the situation you've been utilizing plays out. So I'm really interested in disillusionment, as I mentioned earlier. And I think karaoke compels people into going beyond transcending and usurping their capability. So it's like composed in another style. It's imitation. It's not reproduction. It's not guileless or candid. It's like a truth that's distorted and it's kind of slanted in its positioning. And it's a kind of form of parody. Mm and it contains slippages and when it's enacted it's almost like when you sing in the shower or when you're singing with your hairbrush like you say but especially when you're singing in the shower where your voice is like elevated to levels that it wouldn't usually yeah, be able yeah, that's to a good point. reach yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's kind of high, uh, reaching these unattainable heights and then becoming like a star for a moment. So, like when you're singing karaoke, it's possible to fool yourself into believing you're the star for a mm. short moment. However, there's usually a moment where the spell is broken. Um and karaoke rings true and is familiar but it's not the original it's like familiar lines that are delivered in a new voice and as we mentioned in relation to dolly parton a parody with within a genre can be self-reflexive and self-aware and then lines begin to blur between celebrating and critiquing and the stereotype that is uh, is kind of relied upon but also abused and then these paradoxical positions can coexist and that's quite an interesting space i think to play with
1: Yeah. And I think as well, I think mimicry is really important in terms of the work, but also in karaoke. So as Becca Blue, I'm trying to like embody this idea of what a singer is like a famous singer at that. So I have a bouncer, I'm all made up in like glamorous attire. And I'm definitely working with this stereotype of, as you said, like being a star. Yeah. So in the actual performance itself, there are moments where I use my hands in that kind of singing gestural way, you know, when you kind of like pull out of yourself with your hand, like you're expressing a certain <laughs> emotion, emotion and I do that a lot in the performance and it's a gesture that you see singers using regular, regularly as well. So there's an element of like that I'm mimicking it, but at the same time I can I use it in this way that I really feel it and it kind of becomes a part of that language again mm. And I really love that karaoke allows for those moments when you can be really extroverted and you can lay your emotions out Mm. and it's accepted and it's embraced. Um, And then this mimicry is used as a tool, I think. So there's something in that stereotype of me looking like a star that hopefully allows the audience to accept their role as an audience member as well. Mm. And I really want the audience to feel something, to be like moved and to feel emotional. And I want us both to be really invested into it So I guess when I first came up with the idea, I remembered a feeling I used to have when I would go to gigs and it would feel like the singer was singing to me. And I wanted to somehow recreate that, but make it a reality as in that I'm actually singing to that one person. And for those three minutes, they are the only person that matters. Yeah. Um, And another really important element of the work is that it's physical so I think, you know, we can watch performers on YouTube and our favourite singers singing <laughs> videos <laughs> and also in any place that we are in the world, almost. And we're seduced by music videos and these performances online, but it seems to me that there's this, like a kind of disconnect when viewing these things digitally. Yeah. And so for me, it was really important that the work came back to the physical and hopefully that enhances the experience for the audience. Um. And as an aside to that, so continuing on with like this kind of karaoke theme, I'm currently working on a duet project with Ollie Chapman, whose artist name is Aunt Lucy. Ah. Um, yeah, so he's a musician and we're, or a producer, and we're collaborating on a karaoke type of project where we cover famous love songs, such as Love Me Tender by Elvis Presley, yes. or I'd Rather Go Blind by Etta James. And the intention is that we are going to make an EP of these tracks and hopefully do some gigs together. And we're going to hear one now. Aren't yeah, we? we're going to hear it Love Me Tender. Cool. love of covering songs and doing karaoke and that's how this kind of project began and um, we also use this in obviously in our individual practices so me as Becca Blue and Ollie and his Aunt Lucy guys um, and now in this collaboration so, and you're a couple and you are a couple <laughs> are we allowed to say that I love them I love public the, announcements yeah I like the blurry boundaries <laughs> I wasn't going to announce it but that's cool Tough. <laughs> Um so in the covers that we're doing there's this idea of um paying homage to the original track but whilst also making it our own. Yes. Um so we do that by giving it this like overall sound that is much darker and more twisted and more eerie than the original. So in Love Me Tender, you can hear that um through that nightmarish sound from the synths and the wolf house. And there's like, there's parts where the singing gets slowed down. And I think this is really important because even though all of the songs we're covering are from different decades, and they sound quite different, we've kind of merged them together and made them sound as if they come from the same physical space and time that they belong together. Mm. Um, It seems to me that we're creating a reality for the songs to exist within. And it's something that I do a lot within my own practice as well. So it feels really exciting to see how that process can then transfer into like making music as well. Um, So currently I'm working on a painting, um, a large fresco piece in my studio, and I began this piece almost a year and a half ago, and it's painted directly onto the walls within my studio. It consists of floating bodies, objects, plants and body parts, and it seems to be taking on this quite dreamy feel. Mm. Um, It has a lot of autobiographical themes, and I feel I've been using it as a way to understand aspects of my life from the past year. So the body disintegrating and the transition from life to death seems mostly present as themes for the work, as this came from caring for my um, dad, and he died last year as well, but also trying to understand my own body as I deal with a chronic pain condition. Mm -hmm. So the body scan that you just had a little bit of is something that I use in my daily life as well to manage the pain. And I feel it's become a bit of a soundtrack for the last year. And I also feel that perhaps a good backdrop for the painting that seems to match well with that kind of dreamy, floating Mm. figures and skeletons, kind of like a zen, otherworldly quality to it. Mm. So I think when I make work, it in general tends to reflect my life at that given moment. Um, And I try to fulfil my needs through making art. So singing in particular seems to be acting as a way for me to re-engage with my body. And with the cactus dance, I was able to be more physical and I could dance and move my body exactly how I wanted. Um, So although I can't do that anymore, like singing is kind of replacing it in this way Mm. that I can kind of focus on my breath and it's much more inward and it's much more gentle. Mm. And then the painting that I'm working on, um, although it's really difficult because it's a really big piece of work and I only get like short amounts of time when I can paint, it's also like allowing me to kind of work out images of what it feels like to be in my body at the moment. I'm kind of, like, trying to work out ways to illustrate those feelings. So, for example, before I kind of found out I had mild scoliosis, like, in November, and, like, six months previous previously to that, I was painting all of these spines in, like, twisted contortion. Interesting. Yeah, kind of spooky. Yeah. yeah. Um and I guess so my health is like dictating the way I work but also the imagery I am to- making. Mm. They're really beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um so the painting as I said is in situ within my studio and this was a very conscious decision as I live in a guardianship building. So I like the idea that I could paint like directly onto the walls but whilst knowing that the building will eventually be knocked down and turned into flats. Yeah. So it kind of seems funny to me that it's permanent yet transient as it, like, Mm. awaits destruction. Mm. And I also think about it in terms of, like, old fresco paintings in churches and palaces where there was, like, great cultural significance in working in this way. Mm. And there's something quite ironic that I'm attempting this kind of fresco, yet with the full knowledge that it's going to be bulldozed. (laughs) Yeah. so spaces that I work within have also a huge impact on my practice and this is the second time I've worked on painting directly onto walls. Uh, the first time was much more as an environment or a backdrop for a video piece, mm. whereas this painting feels more traditionally akin to like what we know as painting or what we think painting is. Um, but I feel like I still have this like element of wanting to stage an idea, so the painting is still staged, it's almost like an installation in a way. Yeah. And I think this comes from kind of an interest in making films and thinking about painting as this way of it potentially being a screen or a reference to the digital world. Um, I like that painting can expand into environments and it can seep onto in floors, mm. but it, it can be really physical, but it can also be a reference to the digital. So using it as a backdrop and as a set seems to lend itself to this way of making paintings. Um and so, although I like to think about painting within a digital context, I also am really not sure about platforms <laughs> such as instagram um so I go for like months without posting stuff, and I'm not sure about this kind of constant constant scrolling that we do and the way we are like self promoting um and it feels like we are consumer consuming sorry rather than experiencing, and that makes me feel uneasy yeah. I have to say. Yeah. But then having said that at the same time, it like seems to make sense that we would use social media to like advertise shows or like show work. Um, and in the case of like Amalia Orman, who uses it as a way to make an artwork and explore personas. But for myself, there's just something I'm not sure like how best to use it. And it seems ironic at the same time because I deal with issues around private versus public yeah. and constructive realities. Yeah, there's something inside of me that like that kind of online world is just really unsatisfying Mm. I just don't know what to do with it
2: (laughs) I think yeah I know I I agree I like also view artworks as like props and prompts to engage social interaction rather than just operating as like an object and I'm obsessed with the idea of the backdrop and something that's meant to be viewed quickly to convey a scene convincingly but which under scrutiny would fall apart and I really love Trump loy paintings but only in the moment where they fail and you realize no that isn't a real door it's a rendering of reality and there's something about like being willingly complicit in our deception and suspending our disbelief and it reminds me of viewing magic tricks again these like fine lines between reality and construct a magician never performs the same trick twice or reveals his mechanisms and once the audience learns how a trick was done they wish they hadn't And as with many things in life, the reality isn't as good as the mystery. And I'm really interested in this idea of being like a willing accomplice in self-deception, especially via artworks. And you can only really ever appreciate how clever a ruse has been once you know it's a ruse. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And we get like a pleasure out of being hoodwinks precisely because we know we have been, but we can't figure out how. Um, And there's a really great Francis Stark quote from Scared to Death, Um, I quote, For faux painting to sustain its effect, a viewer must not partake in any isolated or protracted viewing. It's meant for glancing, not looking. I like to believe someone could inevitably break out of the glance mode and start to pay attention at which... Point, all hell could very well break loose so I think there's a different aspect of the false as well within artworks where the audience can engage with it in total knowingness and in the moments of realization the audience may become complicit in their continuing deception it's like how much you want to believe how long you want to believe the lie um, in order to experience the effects um, and it's kind of interesting when you speak about your work as a backdrop and your mm. issues with Instagram because when I came to your studio, we discussed how Instagram is almost like the new fresco. It's like a stage set and a backdrop, yeah. but to life. Yeah. Um, and artworks also can function as Instagram backdrops. An ex-boyfriend of mine, Alistair Frost, made, I think it was him, made paintings with like the text reverse so that when people did selfies yeah. or when they were in the mirror or something, it would like read the right way. So it was like specifically for Instagram <laughs> yeah. and social media. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And lots of artists do kind of play with the Instagram-friendly work. Um, and at your studio visit we were like saying this trend of people taking selfies with art is a bit like how people used to pose for photos outside like the Sistine Chapel for example and I often feel it's only once I post something on Instagram that it (laughs) has actually happened in reality which is a really worrying state of mind. Do we live for the moment or do we document it and Mm -hmm. there's like this obsession with documentation as evidence that something has happened Mm -hmm. Um, and these concerns aren't new you know we need to feel seen as I was (laughs) saying earlier needed to be seen perfectly (laughs) you know it's all about being seen uh does the fall the tree fall if no one sees it and for me artworks don't become finished until they're on instagram it's it's tragic but or until i see them like in a magazine like in a someone reposting it in like an art magazine or something it's kind of yeah it's weird um but it kind of makes sense and like it's interesting to me and i'm using that within this lunar water project because i'm thinking about the internet then as this kind of giant and ever-growing crystal ball because it's kind of the internet is the new sublime basically isn't it it's limitless it's awe-inspiring and it connects us through space and time and it's this growing brain that feeds itself and it's a crystal ball because it can predict our next moves our next likes, and our next loves before we even know ourselves via algorithms, it knows what we want to buy. Do you know what I mean? Or thinks it does. And so although it is meant to connect us, it kind of alienates us and makes us self-obsessed, but it has got this predictive, so it's interesting in terms of the online tarot thing, um, For me, life is almost a constant in performance. As I was saying about like discourse genres, you're constantly performing one role or another. This is like radio role. You know what I mean? There's like all these different sets of roles we play. Um, And for me, it's like one that is documented via social media on a daily basis or for lots of us. Um, And we're constantly performing for an audience that we self-select. So this kind of over-dependence on social media where the world is viewed through this kind of restricted mirror mirror is dangerous because it's already a reflection of our own outlook. So it results in us becoming very narcissist like, looking into a pool and falling in love with our own self reflection rather than actively engaging in the world and thereby growing psychologically. So for example, we can Mm. hashtag solidarity rather than actually becoming involved in political events. That's dangerous. Um And there's an amazing book I've been reading called Trick Mirror by Jaya Tolentio, I think it is. (laughs) Um, And I think it really relates to these concerns and also links to discourse genres, which we touched on previously. I'm going to do a quote. Um, The self is not a fixed organic thing, but a dramatic effect that emerges from a performance. This effect can be believed or disbelieved at will. Offline, there are forms of relief built into this process. Audiences change over. The performance you stage at a job interview is different from the one you stage at a restaurant later for a friend's birthday, which is different from the one you stage for a partner at home. At home, you might feel as if you could stop performing altogether. With, you might feel as if you'd made it backstage. Goffman observed that we need to both... Uh We need both an audience to witness our performances as well as a backstage area where we can relax, often in the company of teammates who've been performing alongside us. Think of co-workers at the bar after they've delivered a big sales pitch or a bride and groom in their hotel room after the wedding reception. Everyone may still be performing, but they feel at ease, unguarded, alone. Ideally, the outside audience has believed the prior performance. So this is a great quote. And as a last quote for today, in Hegel's Phenomenology of Mind, he states, in the case where the self is merely represented and ideally presented, there is not actual. Where it is by proxy, it is not. And that makes me wonder, if we're living online lives, what is left of us in reality? Mm -hmm. So (laughs) this is maybe a good moment to play a regular feature on the Silver Stream from writer and curator Charlie Mills, and he responds to the episode themes each month
0: hello again uh charlie mills here for my regular four minute section at the end of byzantia's show responding to the theme of each month's conversation uh it used to actually be five minutes but sadly i've had to drop a minute because i was losing her quote so many goddamn followers um well cue a quartet of small violins and one sinking titanic never let go byzantia never let go Anyway, for this month, Byzantius has been speaking to the fantastic Rebecca Malloy. Uh, One of the interesting things, I think, that came out of their conversation was this idea of the human body as some kind of prop or as an expanded toolkit uh, beyond just having, you know, opposable thumbs and a fully fledged cranium. Uh, You know, this idea of it as a tool or rather as a site for artistic practice itself. Uh, So without trying to run through the entire history of art relating to artists having incorporated their own body into their work, which sounds like a rather daunting and somewhat implausible scope for an hour or three and a half minute piece, instead I just wanted to very quickly look at a real grisly, gritty, gnarly end of this spectrum. Uh, So in particular an artist that, to raise the wage of an artist putting their body in their work, is actually put their own body in their own body. Uh, so the artist I'm thinking of is Stellark, uh, a totally rad uh, Cyprus-born performance artist raised in the Melbourne suburb of quote, Sunshine, uh, whose work focuses heavily on extending the capabilities of the human body, uh, centred on his concept that the human body is obsolete. Uh, and he was mostly working in a kind of early 2000s, kind of early, early transhumanist artist. Uh, So his work usually involves robotics or other relatively modern technology for the time integrated with his own body, Uh, so for example he would allow his body to be controlled remotely by electronic muscle simulators connected to the internet, Uh, he also performed with a robotic third arm uh, and also a pneumatic spider-like six-legged walking machine uh, which the user would see in the centre of the legs and allow them to kind of control the machine through arm gestures. Uh, amongst other things, he was also well known for this suspension series, uh, where he basically hang himself upside down on about 40 metal meat hooks that are inserted deep into his muscles and he was strung up in the gallery. Uh, which, if you ever seen that scene from Saw 3D, when the guy has to insert hooks into himself and climb up a huge chain? Or when James McAvoy is being tortured by the same method in The Last King of Scotland? You know it's a pretty messed up situation to find yourself in, let alone voluntarily. Uh, Anyway, he did this awesome project that started in 2006 and lasted for 10 years called Ear on Arm, uh, which basically uh, was about putting an ear in his arm. Uh, So basically, he had three surgeries where he first implanted a skin expander to create excess skin that could accommodate the shape of a human ear on the inside of his left forearm. Uh, The second surgery introduced a biocompatible implant designed to induce the growth of his own ear cells. Uh, and then the final procedure to implant a microphone which would be wirelessly connected to the internet. The goal being that someone on the other side of the world could then tune in or even hack Stellark uh, and listen to whatever he was up to at the time. Um, Well, the first two surgeries were a success. Uh, Dude had a whole human ear growing inside his arm, um, his own ear. Uh, But unfortunately, the microphone on the third surgery actually ended up getting infected and it had to be taken out. Um, which is a massive shame. Um, But anyway, you know, beyond the kind of platitudes of the porosity of the human body, or, you know, to quote Donna Haraway, we're all cyborgs, uh, this project was just simply, like, effing insane and one of the best original transhumanist artworks that I can kind of think of, Um, which makes me all the more happy when David Lee, uh, then editor of the arts magazine Jackdaw, was quoted in a 2003 Guardian article stating that Quote, Stelarc is not exploring anything artistic at all. He's just putting an ear on his arm. This is not art, end quote. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Stelarc, great artist and pioneer of loving your own body so much you decide to grow a new body and reinsert it into your own existing one. Uh, Kudos, Stelarc. I respect that.
2: You've been listening to The Silver Stream. I'll be back next month. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me. And bye, everyone.